The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Sharpshooter, the word conveys images of a lone sniper sitting on a tree branch, taking careful aim at an unsuspecting target half a mile away. What was the reality of the sharpshooter's life? How did sharpshooting affect the course of the Civil War? What exactly was a sharpshooter? We'll ask these questions and more of author Gary Yee, whose new book is called Sharpshooters, The Men, Their Guns, Their Story. And we'll find out today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the third floor of the towering four-story Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina on a sunny February Friday in 2010. It's sunny here in North Carolina, windy and cold, but in other parts of the United States, and most importantly in New York, there's a lot of snow. Therefore, listeners outside uh, of, well, actually listeners anywhere in the world will be excused for thinking everything is under snow because if New York and Washington get snow, then that's all we hear about elsewhere in the country for days and days. so our tolerance is limited for weather talk. Let's move on. Uh, Although coming to you from East Carolina University, it's not on behalf of the university. They've got their own TV station and radio outlets and other things to express their opinions. These opinions are strictly my own, and the same will be true of our our guest today. The uh, last week, uh, we had the pleasure of reporting that an attempt by the North Carolina Board of Education to eliminate U.S. history before 1877 from high school curriculum was uh, defeated uh, by the power of public opinion, including the unanimous opinion of the history department here at East Carolina, that there was, in fact, history before 1877 and that uh, it ought to be taught in uh, in the high schools, not just in the middle school or elementary school. 
But victory can be short-lived. This past week, we, uh, I discovered through a very insidious sort of under-the-radar email notifying me that the uh, state teacher licensure board is now uh, changing their requirements. Formerly, among the m numerous requirements to get a state teaching license, you had to have at least one history course, one literature course, and a particular psychology course uh, with some number attached to it. Those three requirements have been eliminated. Uh, one still has to take various uh, humanities or social science courses to meet the foundation's curriculum requirement. Some places they call that gen ed or distribution or, or whatever you might call it. But the specific requirement by the state that you must have a history course is no longer necessary to become a teacher. And our College of Education here on campus couldn't act quickly enough to uh, weaken their curriculum the same way, taking out the history requirement. So. The battle continues. Uh, people are determined not to know what happened in the past. Uh, there are those of us listening to this show or producing this show at this moment who feel otherwise, but uh, sometimes it is a, a, a struggle that can be discouraging to try to keep uh, the interest in history alive through uh, through uh, programs like this as, as well as through the universities. On the other hand, uh, here on campus yesterday, we had interesting presentations from various authors, uh, including one of my colleagues, uh, Larry Tice, who's written a new book about the Wright brothers that looks quite promising. And uh, there was a fascinating presentation that, that might be the basis of a future show by the retired director of Somerset Place, a local uh, antebellum plantation maintained by the state of North Carolina as a historic site which became internationally uh, known briefly in the 1980s when the director staged a homecoming, a reunion of, of descendants of anyone who had lived on the plantation, uh, free or enslaved, and thousands, literally 3,000 people showed up, uh, the majority descendants of, of the former slaves, who of course outnumbered the owners. Uh, but it was the beginning of a, a new era of public history, of, of historical interpretation at Somerset Place uh, that continues to the present day where the visitor sees not just the big house, but uh, the quarters and the way uh, the majority of the people lived uh, on such a, in, in such a place. And it, it struck me that there has been great progress in public history and the presentation of historic sites over the last 20 or 30 years in uh, not in being uh, more uh, politically responsive to needs, but more historically accurate in reporting what everybody was doing in the past, not just uh, uh, what uh, certain people who particularly uh, left historic records may have been doing in the past. And one more point while we're on the, the topic, it's been a busy week in North Carolina public history. The state is proposing to add some memorials, monuments, plaques, uh, signs, markers, whatever, to the grounds of the state capitol in Raleigh, which already feature a number of uh, monuments and memorials to famous people in North Carolina history. Uh, but the monuments they have now there are overwhelmingly uh, uh, reflections of contributions by uh, white male North Carolinians many of whom did something that ought to be remembered, was important and worth remembering. 
but the impression it gives a visitor is that nobody but white males lived in North Carolina till uh, well till now actually, and that again historically is not really uh, a valid picture, an accurate picture. So uh, a statewide uh, committee has been formed, and they've been conducting hearings around the state. And they came to Greenville last, uh, earlier this week, and I had a chance to listen in and go to the hearing with some of my public history students and get to see how public history is made in the raw. People proposing, uh, one of the promising suggestions was a monument to the USCT of North Carolina, the United States Colored Troops, uh, to re reflect their contribution, uh, largely here in the eastern part of the state, to the Union war effort. How popular that will be in some quarters uh, in North Carolina is yet to be seen. There may be other markers that may be put up instead. We'll have to see. But uh, it does show that the, the past certainly is not dead, and indeed it is not even the past yet uh, here and in many other places. Well, that's what's going on uh, in the the, uh, the current past. But let's go back uh, further today to the Civil War and talk about a, uh, a new book of... Uh, substantial interest and, and substantial heft, uh, as we'll hear in a moment, uh, written by a, a longtime listener to Civil War Talk Radio, Gary Yee. Uh, Gary, are you there? Hello, Gary, are you there? Hello, Professor. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Good. And please, please call me Jerry, uh, uh, although I like the Professor title, but I'm, I'm all in favor of it, but... Uh, we're just we're just talking civil war today, so uh, uh, please do that. Um, well, thank you for being on the show, and and uh, I want to start in by talking about this uh, very interesting book that you've written here, Sharpshooters, subtitled 1750 to 1900: The Men, Their Guns, Their Story. This book is one that that I would have to. Uh, classify, if I were looking in the dictionary for the phrase labor of love, I think I would find a picture of this book. Um, I say that because it's more than 700 pages long. It's got a lot of information about sharpshooters. Uh, so let, let me ask an obvious question. This must be a topic of, of great uh, meaning to you. Uh, first, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, it's, a, it's my honor to be talking to you right now. And secondly, it was indeed a labor of love. So, did uh, question people often ask me, and, and any writer gets asked, how long did it take to write this book? It took about eight and a half years of work, of, you know, a lot of field research at the uh, different battlefields, a lot of reading, and if you look at the bibliography, it's quite extensive, a lot of uh, trips to museums, National Archives, Library of Congress, a lot of communication with people who are in the field, uh, professors like yourself, um, uh, rangers, and other writers. So this is not something you do full-time. You, you, you keep busy during the day with something else. Is that right? That's correct. I work as a uh, director of security for the War Memorial Performing Arts Center during, during my regular life. So, uh, and, and as you know, as a longtime listener to the show and, uh, and all our listeners know, it's remarkable how in the field of Civil War studies so many uh, books, uh, many good books, uh, are, are produced by people who aren't uh, full-time historians who are journalists or uh, uh, lawyers or plumbers or uh, re really anything, uh, but who have a, a, a passion for this topic. Is, 
in this case, is is it the the Civil War era that would you say is your primary interest, and in, in sharpshooting is part of that, or is it the uh, uh, the phenomenon of of, of of the weapons and, and sharpshooting in general that, that is your primary focus? Uh, when I started, I was not a member of the Civil War community. I was interested in the uh, in the sharpshooting aspect of the story. I had read a book years ago by Captain Peter Shore, who wrote with British snipers to the right. And there was a passage in it that described the 5th Battalion of the 60th Regiment, British Army, the King, uh, Royal Americans. And it described how they crawled on their backs like, uh, shot from their backs and crawled on the ground like snakes. And so that intrigued me and drew me into the black powder era. And I started reading French and Indian War history to learn more about them. And somehow I got, I got uh, straight off into the American Revolution. Naturally, this led to the American Civil War. And since then, I've become a member of the Civil War community. And I belong to three Civil War roundtables right now. And I, uh, I've given talks to all three of them. Well, the, the, your book does cover all these other areas. Uh, I mean, it starts really with the beginning of, of, of accurate aimed fire and, and goes up through the, uh, the, the revolution, the French and Indian War, the revolution, Napoleonic Wars. Um, so if, if, you, if, if this is a subject of interest to you, so you initially started with the black powder community, uh, I assume you... you practice uh, as well as preach uh, shooting black powder? Uh, yes, I do, but not as much as I want to. The book took up a lot of time, and that uh, took away from the range time, but I have been shooting black powder guns for years, both revolvers and uh, flintlock rifles, and now even mini ball guns because of my interest in it. I want to, I, it's, there's no substitute for going out there in a the few and seeing what these things can actually do, and there's a real thrill to it, too. I would agree with that. One of the authors you mentioned uh, in the book is a colleague of mine here, Larry Babbitts, here at East Carolina. And, and uh, uh, Larry does a lot of living history, and he has taken me out to the range to to shoot the rifled musket on occasion. Now, I have to agree, there really is no substitute for the experience. For If, if you want to get a sense of what you're reading about, uh, to actually do it. Not shooting at an actual line of screaming rebels charging at you. That experience I could do without. But but shooting at a target, at least, uh, uh, does give you a sense of this. So with your book, um, you... Well, let me start with a question I asked in the, the beginning of the show. Uh, what exactly is a, a sharpshooter? When, when I started reading, I thought I knew, and then you, you started talking about multiple definitions of the word. Uh, what does it mean? Well, technically, a sharpshooter is a military marksman who is really skilled at shooting. But in uh, reading Civil War literature, we actually, or at least I found there's like four different skill levels of so-called sharpshooters. It, one has to recall that the average Civil War soldier didn't have Wikipedia yet or, or, and didn't carry a dictionary. So the sharpshooter can be a very loosely used term if, whenever you read a Civil War diary, journal, library, published memoirs. And the, the lowest skill level would be just the fellow who's out there facing you, and you call him a sharpshooter. It doesn't necessarily mean that he has any sharpshooting skills or even knows how to use his gun. It's just that he's on the other side, and he's shooting at you, and, and so you write down sharpshooter. Uh, the second type of sharpshooter who's a little more skilled is that same fellow, but practice makes perfect. And if you keep shooting at a certain object at a fixed distance, pretty soon you figure out how to hit the object. 
you know, we call it Kentucky windage. If your bullet is hitting six inches too low all the time, you aim six inches higher, and pretty soon you can hit the target. So with a little bit of practice, these uh, soldiers learn how to shoot. But if you move it, give them another target, another distance, they'll have to go through that learning curve. Hopefully it's a little faster this time. Uh, the next class higher up would be the designated sharpshooter in the Federal Army. And this is a guy who shoots a, a certain qualifying score at uh, 200 yards and uh, meets the War Department requirements and joins a recognized sharpshooter unit. And finally, the last class and the highest class of uh, sharpshooter are those guys with the uh, specialized rifles, the target guns, the guns with telescopic sights, or in the Confederacy, the Kerr rifle or the Whitworth rifle. Of course, these are only rough guidelines, and there's variations of it that I found throughout the study of uh, the Civil War history. So, I mean, that that was quite striking that, that the word is, you know, does have these various meanings. None of them are connected with the, the Sharps rifle, uh, which you sometimes see that, that allegation. Is, is that true? That's correct. Uh, the term sharpshooter actually comes from the German uh, word sharpschützen, sharpshooting. And so it, it's used preceded the development of the Sharps rifle of Civil War fame. So that's one, one myth we can move beyond. Um, now, let's talk a bit about the, the rifles, the technology here. Before the uh, – there were sharpshooters going back, but people shooting you – know, military people shooting accurately, uh, as you describe it, uh, in American history back. Uh, you trace it to the French and Indian War, I would guess. Uh, we even have a quote from John Smith going back to the first European settlers, uh, uh, the idea of, of aimed fire. To an, uh, a novice, to somebody who doesn't know military history, you would assume, well, everybody aims before they fire. But through much of, of the history of military musketry, uh, a lot of the fire is not aimed. Uh, so, so who gets who, who decides who's going to aim their weapon and who just points it and fires it? Well, the very first guns that were, let's say, issued throughout the military were smoothbore muskets, whether they were arquebus or matchlocks guns, and they were smoothbore because volume of fire was considered paramount in the battle. You wanted to put out as much bullets, as much flash, as much noise as possible to demoralize the other side. And once he was demoralized, your your pikemen could rush in and finish them off. Uh, accuracy wasn't required of these men because it would slow down the uh, rate of fire. And what they thought was that if you, didn't, if you didn't hit the guy in front of you, there was always some fellow on his left or right or even behind him because the formations fought, that the soldiers fought in were very dense. It was linear formations, and it had evolved from the days of the pikemen. So as time went on, though, uh, more accurate guns were developed. The, the uh, rifling was introduced in the gun barrel, and that imparted a spin to the bullet. Now, it wasn't really favored by the world's militaries because the rate, to be accurate, the ball had to be tight-fitting, which meant that it was slower to load. You didn't have the high volume of fire. You had accuracy, but there was a trade-off. So only a very few select soldiers were issued these guns, and it took many years before it became standard military issue. I mean, it was experimented with their, much of the... Uh, earlier wars, like the French and Indian War, American Revolution, War of 1812, etc., etc., but it still, uh, the rifle did not take hold of the world's militaries until the mini-ball came out. Well, let's, let's take a break here and come back and talk about that important uh, development. Uh, we're talking today with Gary Yee, author of Sharpshooters, The Men, Their Guns, Their Story. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The Civil War sharpshooter, what effect did his talents, his abilities have on the outcome of Civil War battles? We'll ask this question and others when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Gary Yee, author of Sharpshooters, The Men, Their Guns, Their Story. Uh, Gary, before we get back to the the story itself, uh, I want to ask a question about the book, it is a handsome book. It's a very nice cover, uh, very uh, good quality. It's illustrated. It's got diagrams. Uh, uh, really uh, a pleasure to hold on to. Uh, the dust jacket says it costs $45, which, again, at 700, uh, actually more than 800 pages, um, uh, by the pound, it's quite a bargain uh, uh, at that price. How did you... How did you go about getting this published, uh, if I can ask that question? Actually, I self-published the book. Uh, one of my mentors, who uh, Rocky Chandler, wrote about a, seven sniping books, and he, he always pushed me towards self-publishing. And I had thought about maybe taking the book outside, but I figured out that I wouldn't even break even. I'm, I'm just trying to recover uh, what I can from my expenses. It, research, as you know, is very time-consuming and expensive, and I was spending something thousands of dollars every year just on the books alone. Most of the books li- listed in a bibliography are in my bookshelves downstairs. Mm. So I've got like 21 bookcases in my house right now. <laughs> uh, I, I can imagine. It is a substantial bibliography. Well, this, the, as anyone picking up the book will discover, you have a lot of firsthand accounts, a lot of primary source accounts of incidents of sharpshooting, uh, both both before but primarily during the Civil War. And in that sense, this book is almost like a reference work. I, I could see if I needed to quote something for a class about sharpshooters, I would turn to this and, and go to the right uh, chronological section, and, and there would be uh, some account taken maybe from the official records or from uh, letters or diaries. Uh, but obviously you've done a great deal of, of research in the original sources to put this together. And I, I say that because there's a there's a well-founded, I will say, prejudice against self-published books in the the uh, uh, the academic world. Uh, the assumption is that if somebody is out is writing for a living, that they would find a press that would publish what they want. 
that model is starting to change these days. And, and, and my colleagues and I talk about this. Uh, the University of Michigan Press announced last week it was no longer going to publish uh, you know, monographs other than in an online form uh, because it was not economical. If the topic is too specialized, they can't sell enough. And, and you obviously understand the economics of this situation. It's hard to, uh, uh, to break even, much less make money publishing. So typically, uh, the, the academic author is expected to go out and, and get an, a university press, but that's harder and harder to do. And uh, the alternative, uh, one alternative is self-publishing. And as I said, there's, there's a, a prejudice against it, which is often well-founded because a lot of books so published are, are worthless. Uh, there's a reason the author couldn't find a press. And I'm distressing this point because cause this book is very worthwhile. I found it quite interesting, uh, a valuable collection of, of these first-hand accounts, and I, I learned a lot from it. Uh, so I'm letting the listeners know, don't be put off as you might be. Uh, it's not every day that, that uh, we have self-published folks on the show, but uh, uh, this one's worth your while. Now, when we left off the first section, we were talking about the uh, technology of, of, of sharpshooting, and you mentioned how smooth bores were were commonly used, uh, but then the rifle came along and was difficult and slow to load. Smooth bores are not very accurate. Uh, you, you can't really be a sharpshooter with a smooth bore, can you? Uh, not really, but with some practice, you can get a reasonable degree of accuracy. And, but it, that's one thing a lot of soldiers didn't have uh, at all, practice. I mean, Lawrence Babbitt's proved it when he was shooting at a brown, his brown best replica at a, a silhouette of a British soldier at 75 yards. He uh, managed to hit it five out of six times, and he sh- shot quite rapidly when he did that. But the trick was that he, he practiced before he uh, started his experiment. And this wasn't something that was looked upon favorably by the uh, any army because they saw it as a waste of powder and lead. In the British army, the colonel of the regiment would have to pay for it. He was there to make money and make himself look good, and he wasn't going to waste money that way. Everybody figured that one or two volleys and, the, and you lowered your bayonets in charge, and the, uh, the battle was decided at that point. So nobody took shooting or shooting accurately with any degree of uh, seriousness back in the uh, Flintlock era. Then we move from, from the flintlock era. Uh, you described the, the invention of the, the percussion cap, which makes the rifle more, or the musket at that point, more more reliable. But to really make it accurate, you need a rifled barrel, and uh, that takes too long to, to jam the, the bullet down if it's going to fit into the rifling um, until Captain Manier comes along. How does he solve that problem? Well, he was actually one in a series of inventors who came along, and there were several other inventors who just, uh, found other techniques to make the ball, let's say, fit better. And what he did was he came out with a conical bullet design that was undersized. And by, because it was undersized, the bullet would drop easily down the barrel. Now, what he did to make it fit the rifling was he uh, introduced a skirt that it was narrower at the bottom of the bullet. When the powder exploded, it expanded the skirt of the bullet such that it fit into the rifling of the barrel and the rifling caught the bullet and meant, and imparted the spin. So he had all the virtues of a musket, very quick, very easy to load, but all the accuracy of the rifle. And this made it, uh, by inventing this, uh, this bullet, he made it possible for all infantrymen to be equipped with a rifle. 
I should qualify, though, that we had an American, James Burton, who uh, improved on Minier's design. He remo- he got rid of the um, uh, the plug that was at the end of the bullet. He found that it wasn't really necessary, and he made the skirt a little thinner, and it fit, a- and it was just as good. And he didn't have to worry about losing the plug. So the uh, by the Civil War, the the weapon that will become standard certainly by the second or third year of the war is this rifled musket that is easy to load but shoots a spinning bullet. Um, how how accurate is the the standard rifled musket of of the Civil War era? Well, the average mu- rifle musket of the Civil War era was good out to about 500 yards if you practice with it, and that's something that even our Civil War soldiers, the vast majority, didn't have practice either. But given an average rifle musket, they found that it was reasonable out to that distance. This struck me, and I've, I've written about this in terms of the certainly the, the campaigns in the Western theater early in the war. Uh, there you had a lot of troops still using the smoothbore, but the, you did have some introduction of the rifled musket. But these ranges that are attributed to the rifled musket, 500 yards, 600 yards, 800 yards, and in your book describes some really remarkable long individual shots. Um, I, I don't know if it's just my prescription uh, for my glasses, but I'm looking out the window down the street at students, and I'll say 400 yards away, and uh, I, I, they're not very big. Uh, at 900 yards, can you even see another human being? Actually, uh, yes, you can, but there'll be a very small target. We have to concede that not all hits at long distance were done because of the person's skill. Sometimes it was just dumb luck. You know, a blind squirrel finds a nut, and we we can't really verify with any degree of certainty how good a man is unless he practices or unless he tests himself. There's a certain percentage that, okay, if he only hits it one time out of 100, it was dumb luck. But if he can hit a person 40, 50, 60% of a time at that distance, then he does have a certain skill level. And, and, the right, and the weapons could do this. Now, we've been talking about the rifled musket as a standard weapon, but you mentioned uh, among the different classes of sharpshooters, there were those who had specialized weapons. Uh, what, what kind of specialized weapons could you, would you find in the Civil War? Well, there were civilian target rifles of the period, and uh, these could be heavy barrel guns that uh, took a custom bullet. Uh, they were generally anywhere from 16 pounds up to about 40, 50 pounds, which is quite heavy. Mm. Uh, some of them were uh, equipped with with uh, iron sights, and others were given uh, what they called telescope sights in those periods. The other type of specialized weapon was the uh, British Whitworth, which had a, um, a hexagonal bore. And its virtue was, it, besides hexagonal bore, had a very tight-fitting bullet to it. Uh, the advantage of the Whitworth was because it had a longer cylindrical bullet than the Minier, the, it could cut the air better. It's kind of like a, a blocky airplane, a squarish airplane would really meet a lot of air resistance as opposed to a streamlined airplane, which, which would travel faster and easier. And the same applies to the bullet. And the Whitworth being a 45 caliber bullet, had less trouble with the wind than, let's say, the 58-caliber Mini A. I thought it was interesting you noted that the, the Whitworth would even outperform a modern uh, 7.62 sniper rifle uh, at a certain distance. Well, the British found in their test that at 1,880 yards, which is something 
I don't think any uh, 7.62 millimeter NATO equipped uh, sniper would attempt to shoot at. But it, the Whitworth would reach out to 1,880 yards with a degree of accuracy and also with a lot of lethality. Now, the, the caveat is that the target at that distance was 32 feet long and two feet high, which would represent, let's say, a platoon of men standing shoulder to shoulder. So if you aim for the middle of a squad of men or a platoon of men, you're probably going to hit somebody. But you're not going to hit an individual other than just by luck at that target, uh, at that you, range. Uh, it all depends on the the skill of the person. There's a lot of things to contend with, like the wind, for, especially the wind. The wind can be notorious for, for pushing a bullet off course, and the shooter has to be able to read the wind to determine how is it going to affect the bullet and how does he adjust his aim to compensate for it. Uh, we There are recorded hits at, let's say, between uh, Morris Island and Fort Sumter after the Union soldiers captured Morris Island outside of Charleston. The Confederates took the Whitworth rifle to Fort Sumter and at 1,400 yards hit a couple people. So I think they, they made, not, not that they did it every day, but they did hit a couple people at that distance. So, so shooting more than half a mile, it is actually more than theoretically possible. It did happen. Now, normally, the, I mean, this is one sort of the, the, the most specialized aspect of sharpshooting, the idea of, of setting up a heavy target rifle, hitting a, a target a, a half a mile away. Uh, but that's not going to influence a battle. I, I suppose if you hit an individual uh, leader, uh, that would influence a battle. But uh, the sharpshooters are used for more than that. Talk, talk about what sharpshooters did in combat, uh, other than these, these special long-distance moments. Well, most sharpshooters weren't really uh, that they weren't really equipped with the uh, the specialized target rifle. Most of them were just mere skirmishers who had had uh, good good marksmanship skill. Their basic role was to dominate terrain. They went they they preceded the line of battle. And they suppress the enemy skirmishers such that they can have, let's say, grab some hill or grab grab some copse of trees to to hold for their line. Uh, they also uh, removed enemy leadership. Anybody riding a white horse or waving a sword or or who looks like a leader is going to be targeted. I think Colonel Fox in his uh, Fox's 300 mentions that. They also act as screeners for their units, whether they were advancing, retreating. Um, the sharpshooters would often be used to uh, to keep the, to keep the enemy from attacking the main line, so it bought them time. So most of them served basically as specialized skirmishers. You talk about the effect uh, that the, the skirmishers had. They it's often been said that it took a, a man's weight in lead uh, to cause one casualty in the Civil War, that, that hundreds of bullets would be fired uh, ineffectually for every one that, that, that struck home. Sharpshooters would have a much higher accuracy level, obviously, and this would produce a psychological effect. Uh, you found some incidents of that, I believe. Uh, yes. Generally, I... If a person, or let's say if a unit can't respond to a threat, and if you're hopeless in, in face of that threat, then they can become demoralized. And that was first mentioned by a British captain, Henry Beaufoy, of the 95th Regiment back around 1810 when he wrote his book, Slopateria. We find examples of that same thing during uh, the Civil War, where these people, if, they, if you can't move from your place, uh, your position, or you can't fight the enemy back, uh, 
then you become demoralized. There's an incident, I think, uh, one, of the, uh, one person wrote about how this whole how this one artillery unit broke down and they couldn't face, uh, they couldn't fight anymore. Or men being carried away crying because they, they couldn't, uh, there was no means of protecting themselves. They were utterly helpless. The, uh, you mentioned artillery. The doctrine before the Civil War was that artillery could be deployed uh, in front of one's lines and, and begin bombarding the enemy, and then eventually infantry and cavalry would go in and and finish the job. And in, in Napoleonic times, the artillery would outrange the infantry. But that's no longer the case in the Civil War. That's correct. Uh, in the earlier wars, when the infantry had smooth for muskets, they were limited in how far they could shoot. And so artillery could virtually ride up to an infantry formation, unhorse itself, and open fire with canister shot. Now, that came to an end when when it came to, let's say, your unit was still equipped with smoothbore Napoleons, one of the predominant guns of the Civil War. These cannons were often within range of the rifle musket, and these uh, musket these riflemen would start picking off the horses and picking off the men. There's an example in Fredericksburg where the Union armies pinned down before uh, Mary's Heights in front of the stone wall, and somebody decides, we'll send in artillery. The artillery can batter down the wall, and then our men can charge. Well, the battery that rode forward got shot down. The men were shot down, the horses were shot down, and they never had a chance to deploy. So the balance of, of the arms changes with the, the increased accuracy of uh, uh, the, the sharpshooters. So they also, you, you said already, take uh, they would take a toll on enemy leaders, anybody who, who visibly looked like a leader. Uh, I would think by the end of the war, you'd, you wouldn't want to look like an officer. You'd, you'd try to hide yourself among your men. Uh, that's correct. Um, there, were, there, uh, the, there was a War Department order that came out that said you can wear smaller shoulder straps, or in lieu of that, you can just wear the insignia on your right shoulder or on your collar so they were less conspicuous. Uh, I think people started giving up the sashes and started dressing more normally, or at least more like the common infantrymen. It didn't necessarily guarantee your survival, but at least you didn't stand out in the crowd. There's there's a, a line in uh, oh, Ambrose Bierce's account, I think, of Shiloh, where he talks about how the uh, uh, the captain would be standing above the company, which would all be they'd all be prone or behind trees taking cover, and the captain would be shouting, "Take cover!" and the colonel would come along uh, saying, "Captain, take cover!" and then the general would come along and say, "Colonel." Uh, get yourself under cover, each one, meanwhile, making himself as, as absolutely conspicuous as possible uh, to demonstrate uh, his individual bravery and inspire the men. Uh, but that was 1862. That was early in the war. And, and that kind of behavior uh, obviously couldn't last too long. Uh, there simply weren't enough uh, survivors to do that. Now, to, how did be, how did an individual become a a, a sharpshooter? Uh, I mean, there were the kind you mentioned who just you know, might get a reputation among their their friends, but but to be an official sharpshooter, to join a unit uh, so designated, how do you get into that? Well, in the Union Army, I, you shoot, you shot a qualifying score, and then you joined the unit itself. Uh, sometimes uh, it sometimes what happened was. If you earned a reputation, they allow you to transfer into the, an existing unit, too. In the Confederate Army, it was quite a different thing. Uh, sharpshooting sharp was seen as quite an onerous task. It's like 
standing picket duty. It was something that any infantryman can do. It was, uh, most of the soldiers of the Civil War were not professional soldiers. They were civilians who joined for whatever reason. So to them, it, sharpshooting didn't mean anything. The Confederates actually had about five different ways of creating sharpshooters or getting men to be sharpshooters. And early in the war, what they did was they just moved units. For instance, you took a, camp, a company and you transferred that company to a, to a sharpshooter battalion, regardless of what their skill was. You could, they also conscripted men of unknown quality. In some of the worst cases, they hired substitutes who were, who were not even qualified. And there's an example in there of a person who was uh, certified or confirmed as an imbecile, and he was um, discharged from the sharpshooter unit. So being a sharpshooter is not necessarily an honor, at least in the Confederate Army early right. on. Uh, one thing well, we have to look at in the Confederate armies, we have to ask us which army in the Confederacy when and where. And it, it's not like McDonald's where you can go to one store to another and have the same menu. It was quite varied in what you actually got. So, so there, were, there were good sharpshooters and bad ones. We're going to take another short break now. We'll come back in just a moment. Talk more about Civil War sharpshooters with Gary Yee. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. To fight in the heat of battle is one thing. To coolly target an enemy soldier a mile away and kill him with a sharpshooter's rifle is quite another. We'll talk about the ethics of sharpshooting when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Love old cars and want to know more about them? Thinking about investing in your dream car but don't know if it's a smart decision? Want to fix up that classic that's just rotting away in your garage but don't know how to get started? You need Resto Talk. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, Melvin Benziquin, the restoration expert, will address these topics and more and invite prestigious guests from the automotive industry to answer all of your questions and provide you with great quality information. Get your motor started with Resto Talk on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Gary Yee, author of Sharpshooters, The Men, Their Guns, Their Story. And we were talking in our last segment about how one got to be a sharpshooter, how... uh, Uh, One might pass a marksmanship test in the Union Army, or how in the Confederacy you might belong to an elite unit, or you might be a group of sad sacks designated uh, as sharpshooters to get out of uh, of some other duty. uh, There were some famous units of sharpshooters, uh, uh, Burdans or Burdens, I'm never sure how to say that, uh, the Union Regiment. 
is probably the most famous uh, unit of sharpshooters in the Army. Can you talk about them? Certainly. Uh, Hiram Bredan was a uh, an accomplished marksman, one of the best in the country. And uh, it was suggested that to him by Casper Trepp to raise a, a unit of sharpshooters. So he went around the various northern uh, states and and put out and, and put out banners and had people raise companies of marksmen on these the individual captains would which uh, test people and certify them of their sharpshooting skill and they reported to Burdan and he raised actually not one regiment but two he was hoping to raise three but he couldn't quite get enough people for that and these were uh, these men were attired in green uniforms for for a period and initially issued uh, Colt revolving rifles, which were subsequently replaced with the Sharps rifle. But they, at times, served as the sharpshooters who had the specialized rifle, and other times they, were, they served as expert skirmishers. And there were, there were other units in the Union Army, too, that uh, earned a title, like 1st Michigan Sharpshooters, the, uh, a couple of battalions, too, like the 1st New York Battalion or the 1st Maine Battalion. So there were quite a number of units in the Union Army, a lot of individual companies, too, that were attached to various regiments. And, and did they generally get used for these specialized tasks, or were it were just as likely that some, some brigadier would throw them into the line and use them like regular infantry? vast majority of the time, a lot of these men were just thrown in the line like regular infantry. There was, we have to remember that not all the generals were trained in how to use sharpshooters. There was no manual for them. And, to take advantage of them to the best of their ability, so they just put them in with the rest of the boys. Now, in the Confederate Army, um, there's a recent book that refers to uh, the sharpshooting battalions as the, the shock troops of the Confederacy. Uh, that implies that they were leading the attack. They were going in with the bayonet, uh, quite the opposite of sharpshooting. Uh, so I guess the same question for the Confederates. Did they use their Troops, did they have any doctrine or, or method for using sharpshooters differently, or did they also just get thrown into the attack? It depends on what army when and where. If we look at some of the, uh, the Army of Tennessee, a lot of their sharpshooter battalions were took, uh, fought the battle as part of the line of battle and not preceding the line of battle. The Confederates varied in the an Army of Northern Virginia. They varied according to what time. Uh, there was one battalion that was always used as, or for the most part was used as line infantry. And by 63-64, when Lee started raising sharpshooters, they were often used more as, let's say, uh, screeners. They would actually precede the regular skirmish line to try to dominate the terrain. They were also used to infiltrate enemy lines to capture prisoners quite a bit. So in that sense, they were an elite and I would imagine sharpshooting would really come into its own, uh, certainly with the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, when you get to the, the stalemate, the, the trench warfare around Petersburg. That's correct. Uh, because it, your, your marksmen are generally better than the enemies, you can actually silence the enemy, and, and if the fighting got too rough, they would just agree to the terms. they say, let's say, you don't shoot, we don't shoot, and that happened quite often, too. Uh, that they were quite useful in that regard. That if if you want to silence a, a part of the enemy line, you brought them in, you had them hush the enemy, and pretty soon you can have peace in the line without any so-called unnecessary fighting. And as as I mentioned earlier in the show, you you have a, a large number of incidents and, and reports that you uh, 
uh, quote verbatim so the, the reader can see, you know, in the, the person's actual words what happened. And one of those he described as an incident where there was one of these informal truces that tended to break out. But then one side, I think the Confederates began shooting. So the Union brought in some sharpshooters who shot more accurately until the Confederates said, OK, let's both stop. Uh, now, that actually brings me to the question I raised in the, the between the segments about the the ethics of sharpshooting. And, and you don't address that directly in the book, but I want to ask you about it. When when we read about the fighting, uh, the, the, the charge up Missionary Ridge, uh, uh, the, the advance under fire, uh, it's one thing to be shooting your musket at an advancing line and they're shooting at you and everyone is involved in the sort, sort of uh, machinery of combat. You're, you're loading, you read of people loading and firing like, like machines as fast as they can. Uh, that's one thing, uh, shooting into a cloud of smoke in the direction of the enemy fire. But to actually see uh, an individual enemy not during a battle, but but during one of these picket moments uh, when the two sides are camped nearby, select an individual and kill that person. Uh, the soldiers didn't didn't regard that as, as fair play in some cases, did they? That's correct. A lot of soldiers thought it was unethical to shoot a man who was harmless, and they they thought it was nothing short of murder. And there's quite a number of passages in there where. Soldiers remarked that it was a cold-blooded thing to do to shoot down on somebody who's attending to the cause of nature or trying to get a bucket of water to quench his thirst or, to, or just, uh, let's say, serving an ambulance. And it, it did happen. And the, the whole issue arises is, was it, like you say, was it a legitimate form of warfare? And a lot of soldiers didn't think it was. And there's cases where they would actually wouldn't take these men prisoners. They would kill them instead if they ever caught them. Which would be hard to do, but but you, it, I mean, it strikes me how different that is from modern warfare. It, it's not nobody thinks it's a, a good thing necessarily, but the the assumption is uh, that certainly in 20th century warfare, if someone's wearing the other side's uniform, he's fair game. And by the Second World War, with the strategic bombing, if somebody was just a civilian in the other country, they were fair game uh, to to aerial attack and. We've moved away from that. Uh, the, the modern U.S. military spends a lot of effort avoiding collateral damage, but it, but the idea of, of, of shooting an enemy combatant doesn't matter if he's attending to the call of nature, if he's doing something non-threatening, uh, uh, the war is on. That's a different attitude today than, than these soldiers had. And I, I found that quite striking, those, those passages you cited. It has changed quite substantially. Uh, in the old days, that's, we've, we've always thought it was unfair. In fact, Ernie Pyle himself talks about it in his uh, book, Brave Men, how the Americans disliked the German snipers in World War II and didn't like to take them prisoners if they were snipers. And we look at today, and today uh, the, the, we're almost at the point where the Soviets were during this, the, the Great Patriotic War, World War II, where we have the cult of the sniper where we actually honor these men, which I think we should honor all our soldiers. But we, we, don't, we don't frown upon what they do. They're part of a combined mm -hmm. arms team. They have a vital mission, and that is to save lives by reducing the enemy's effectiveness. They can actually increase our effectiveness, and perhaps in, in the view of Grant, by causing the enemy to shed blood, you can actually shorten the war and save lives. 
which is uh, I thought Ernie Pyle's an interesting one to mention because his you know, he was killed behind the lines by a random mortar shell and and just a, a death that had no effect on the outcome of the Second World War a complete waste of of, of uh, you know a brilliant writer and, and a much loved human being uh, and in a sense the sniper uh, can do that can can take someone's life who's, who's not otherwise engaged in the battle and that that. I mean, throughout the book, there's there's a, a, that may be the cumulative impact for me of reading all the, the accounts uh, of, of the way these people, uh, the, the way sharpshooters went about their business, uh, targeting people at long distance. It was not uncommon, uh, or at least there are a number of accounts you, you give of, of duels where two sharpshooters would be shooting at one another. Uh, and it's 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 a game like the Olympics are on. It's almost a competition, but it's not a game because someone's going to be killed. Right. It's a game. It's something with tragic consequences. But that's one of the uh, the things that happen in wartime. Well, the uh, let me ask a, an opinion question. What would you say is the most famous sharpshooting incident of the Civil War? Well, I would say that's the death of General Sedgwick at the uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse. Sedgwick, as we know, was he went to inspect the lines, and he saw a man duck, and he was on foot, and he nudged the man with his foot and encouraged him to get up and not to duck anymore. And the uh, the fellow sheepishly, uh, re- you know, so, uh, replied, I'm "Sorry, sir, but it's been keeping me alive all day." Sedgwick told the fellow why they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance, at which point Sedgwick was shot. The distance was about 800 yards. So that is a pretty remarkable shot, and his last words are more than ironic. Reading, you give another account, that again, I'm sure listeners are familiar with, of the time Abraham Lincoln was under enemy fire at Fort Stevens during Jubal Early's raid in 1864. Uh, and he's out, you know, observing the fighting. I've read that account. Uh, I'm sure every listener is familiar with it. But after reading uh, uh, many, many accounts of sharpshooting incidents, by the time I got to that page, I was thinking, uh, uh, "Get down, you damn fool! Um, you really could get hit at a long distance. Uh, if if Lincoln had been hit, that would surely be the most famous shot of the war. It would have been, and it would have been the most tragic shot of the war too." I think if if, if the uh, Peace Democrats had put in their their candidate, then the Confederacy would have survived. Because I don't yeah. I don't know if the Republicans could have put up anybody to uh, taken Lincoln's place, or if, if anybody had the intelligence and the gift that Lincoln had to pull the nation through. So so and and it was it, it was not uh, not an inconsiderable threat. The, the range at which. Uh, uh, Lincoln was standing was was close enough. Uh, certainly, your book makes clear for for an accurate marksman to have hit him if they if anyone had realized who that was. Now, uh, whereas Lincoln is famous and Sedgwick is famous, these are famous victims. Were there any people uh, who were famous as sharpshooters? You mentioned uh, uh, Burdan. Are there others? Uh, there were some in California. We had one fellow, Truman Head, who joined the Burdan sharpshooters. And he was well publicized in the media of the time back in around uh, 1862 during the McClellan's Peninsula campaign. They would uh, always cluster around and write numerous stories. I have several accounts of uh, Truman Head serving at uh, at uh, Yorktown. They, 
He eventually retired, actually was discharged from the Army because of a medical reason, and he came back to San Francisco. I actually found where he, the general area where he lived in San Francisco. Hmm. Well, it sounds like uh, with the music playing, we're out of time, which always happens too soon. Where can listeners get a copy of this book? Uh, they can go to the website at uh, www.sharpshooterpress.com. All right, sharpshooterpress.com is where you'll find this book, Sharpshooters by Gary Yee. It's, uh, it's a fascinating book. And, Gary, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Jerry. And, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.